Hello and welcome to Bondcast, the podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping bond markets. I'm Giles Gale, European Rate Strategist, and today I'm joined by our global market specialists, Jan Navruzzi and Ross Walker. Jan, we're going to start in the US this week. So we got the inflation number, which showed yet another acceleration. What is going on with that? Yeah, Giles, I mean, that's a, definitely a troubling read, both for the Fed and for the economy. Uh, we saw a little bit of a dip in July before uh, the previous month's read, which turned out to be a little bit of a, a, head, a head fake, uh, because like you said, inflation accelerated again in August. I think the more troubling part of the what goes on within the index for that uh, some of the traditionally more sticky components, such as uh, rents and uh, and other shelter measures and education, they all showed very firm reads, which uh, implies that even going forward, the path of how quickly inflation can fall uh, looks a little bit more, I suppose, elevated. Uh, you know, when you have rents and coming out like 0.7, 0.8 on a monthly basis, it's highly unlikely that they would uh, half the next month. Uh, they are a little bit lagged and they use some form of uh, survey measures that might not necessarily reflect spot rents. But that being said, the Fed has been reacting a lot to uh, realized inflation, which I'm sure we can uh, kind of make the point for other central banks as well. Uh, the Fed has been reacting a lot to realized inflation and uh, getting a 0.6 reading core is uh is, was much higher than what most analysts, including us, expected for this month. Uh, I, I think the main implication is that everyone has to raise their uh, profile for next year inflation expectations and potentially even beyond. Uh, and that obviously has uh, huge implications for monetary policy and potentially uh, you know, fiscal policy should an economic downturn uh, come. All right, so these enormous consequences for monetary policy goes on to the obvious next question, which is how does that affect your Fed view? Have you changed your outlook? We did, and we didn't change it quite dramatically. Uh, so we now expect a 75 basis point hike for the September meeting to be followed by another 75 in November, and then a, a, a small step down to 50 basis points in December, and tentatively we have another uh, 50 uh, pencil then for the first half of next year. Of course, what happens next year is a little bit of uh, a lower confidence view compared to what we think will happen over the next few months. Even that, given you know, the inflation readings has the high confidence should be taken with a grain of salt because now markets pricing a little bit of 100 for uh, for the Fed, which at some point you would think the law of large numbers has to kind of kick in and, and stop these increases to uh, materialize. But I mean, our base case will be 75 going to the meeting. There's you know, two, two big caveats there. We could have uh, a similar release to a leak to, the news, to a newspaper like we did in June. Since the Fed is now in a blackout period, they can't go out and uh, explicitly comment on what they think they should do in, uh, in response to the inflation number. Uh, but they could kind of give 
I guess, hint through some form of uh, you know reliable newspaper that they're planning on doing uh, going to a certain amount of uh, direction. Uh, that would help markets price in a more firm 75 or 100. And when I say 100, we're still close to 25% pricing. So it's not really an overwhelming majority of market participants think that uh, it's going to be a one percentage point hike, but rather it's more of a kind of like a, what feels like a tail hedge uh, buying there. And the other thing is, of course, if that tail hedge buying moves into participants more overwhelmingly believing that the Fed can go 100, they might as well just take the free option if it's given to them. I think that raises a lot more questions than answers because you, it kind of leaves them in a, uh, it leaves the Federal Reserve in a spot to decide what what follows 100 basis point. Is that stepping down back to 75? Is that kind of one of those things that you do to uh, pull off the bandaid as sharply as you can in order to front load as much as as much as possible right now and then stop at the end of the year, stop in November? Uh, so, like I said, a lot of questions and. Uh, it will be certainly a challenging meeting for the, for, the, for the Federal Reserve. And of course, they can come up with a very specific plan, but I'm not so sure they have a very specific plan right now. This, uh, this last inflation number definitely threw a wrench into the equation. And uh, it, so if there was any trend of deceleration or kind of like moving towards target, that has completely reversed now. Okay, so the essentially what you're saying is that the Fed sounds like it's got its work cut out for it. Um, I mean, I guess for longer term rates now, the question becomes, you know, does this really change anything? Obviously, in the short term, we've got this uh, this tussle between you know, a pretty strong inflationary economy and the Fed that wants to to to, to knock it down to size. Um, you know, I, I I guess that we assume that it'll be successful eventually. Um, it's just you know the. Uh, the number of punches it needs to throw is in through in a, in a, in a sense. Does it that it is all transitory depending on your timeline. <laughs> so, so, yeah, just give us a sense for how that's, uh, that, that's um, making you change your view or not on longer term rates as well. Sure. Uh, and I mean, for the, for the shorter dated yields, like I said, it's, it's fairly obvious what the Fed does, the front end follows. Uh, so that's pretty much chasing immediate Federal Reserve action over the next, uh, next year or so. But for down the line, call it like 10-year yields, uh, well, post-CPI, we, we describe what we see is influencing that part of the curve and even uh, further out, 30-year and so, uh, as two opposing forces uh, of upward pressure in yields that could come from the obvious fact that the Federal Reserve is raising, will raise rates to a lot higher levels than most people previously thought, which... Uh, in turn, uh, obviously creates this environment where should a cutting cycle come, they don't necessarily have to go as low again. The probability odds are that if you push rates to five, six percent, the next time you cut, you, you're not going to go down to, or you could go to zero percent, but odds for that are lower compared to if you finish hike, your hiking cycle at three or four percent. So uh, that could, in a sense, set a floor to uh, to real rates. However, uh, the, on, from the other side, we think that as the Fed doubles down, as the Fed ups the ante, you get to a point where the shallow recession that we expected is now turning into more of a more protracted and deeper recession uh, as well. And that in turn also brings uh, it's lower productivity growth, lower business investment, and just generally uh, you end up in an environment with uh, potentially even larger cuts as the recession becomes uh, 
uh, more protracted and more deeper, like I said. So uh, it could be you know, the average cutting cycle, excluding 2018 and to 2020, including COVID, when they couldn't really lift off that much, has been around five to six percent in Fed funds rate. So uh, you know, if we have a severe economic downturn and inflate, which brings inflation under control and creates these disinflationary uh, headwinds. I don't see a reason why the Fed couldn't necessarily return back to the lower bound at some point. So I don't think we should have a kind of like a, a level that the Fed would consider as like we're not going to reach below. Yeah, we don't see them going below uh, neutral anytime over the next year or anything, but it, we're talking about a 10-year instrument. So uh, probabilistically, I don't think uh, you know, the Fed raising high, uh, Fed hiking a lot more today means that those yields should uh go much higher as well. So in fact, our view is that uh, the 10-year yield will, 10-year treasuries will finish their, uh, finish the year at lower yields than where they are now. All right, well, I've certainly had my doubts, but I shouldn't, I shouldn't have because um, that seems to have been roughly the playbook for the week. Um, okay, thanks very much, Jan. Ross, it's over to you now on the UK. Um, now that you've had, I guess, just over a week to reflect on Liz Truss's big energy announcements last week, um, how's that changed your forecasts for the key growth and inflation paths? Yes, well, this is a substantial fiscal intervention. We don't yet have the, the formal costings. Those we think will come next week in the mini budget or fiscal events. And of course, ultimately, they will depend on uh, what happens to, to wholesale gas prices. But the indicated uh, sums are about £150 billion um, over two years. So £75 billion a year, 3% of, of nominal GDP. So this is a substantial pandemic era scaled um, fiscal support. Um, it certainly pushes back against fears of a deeper or, or more prolonged recession. Um, you know, provisionally, I, I think now we're looking for positive rather than negative growth in 2023 and 2024. Um, nothing spectacular, but quarter of a percent perhaps in, in 23, maybe up to 0.7, 0.8% in 2024. Um, so materially better than the, um, the, the, the prior scenario, where essentially those, those GDP numbers had negative signs in front of them. So it feels, it feels like a huge intervention. Um, it's over a two-year period. It's going to provide significant certainty. Um, of course, we will still have had a doubling of domestic energy prices since the period just before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But nevertheless... Alongside that, there was also some prior financial support, £400 for every household, additional funding for poorer households on, on means-tested benefits. So there is a, a significant degree of protection for the UK households versus the position prior to, to this announcement. Again, okay, so with that in mind then, um, thinking about the EC, sorry, the, the Bank of England that pushed its meeting to, into next week, of course. How do you think that they'll be weighing all this up um, in, in, in the risks for the economy, do you think? Um, and I'll just mention that the market price is roughly 60-40 for a 75 basis point rate rise uh, next week. Does that sound about right to you? And then looking a little bit further ahead, uh, the market has about a peak of about 4.4% in bank rate at the moment for the middle of next year. You know, do you think that we can possibly get that far? 
So in terms of, of next week's meetings, we are, we're still in the, the 50 basis point hike camp where most economists appear to be. Um, as you say, markets continue to price in a bit more. Though interestingly, market pricing hasn't really moved dramatically since that fiscal announcement that the markets were always pricing in um, a much higher probability of a, a 75 basis point move. In fact, given the scale of that fiscal announcement and given how much markets had been moving in response to, frankly, second tier data or speculative headlines, it, it, it strikes me as absolutely extraordinary just how little rates markets have moved in reaction to this, this announcement. Um, if anything, I mean, I think the fiscal stimulus on that scale and for that length of time must put some additional upward pressure on policy rates. Um, whether the BOE feels compelled to step up the pace again, because we, they, they, they moved from quarter point hikes to half point hikes at the previous meeting, to move immediately to a 75 basis point hike, in some ways feels, feels quite radical. They may also want, because we haven't yet had the, the full details of these fiscal measures, they may also want a bit more detail and, and the, the benefit of one of their quarterly forecast rounds. So perhaps the bigger risk in terms of if, if, a, if a 75 basis point move is coming or if the BOE moves to that faster pace of tightening, that, that perhaps that begins in November in the context of a full monetary policy report forecast round. But the, the terminal rate, you know, we, we've revised up our forecast to, uh, to 3.5% in February uh, from 3% in, in December prior to the, the fiscal announcement. Um, that is still a substantial amount of tightening in our view, and certainly given the, the limited pass-through from bank rates to actual debt servicing costs for households. So I, I think the jury is still out on, you know, whether the BOE has to move you know, as you say, another 100 basis points beyond that. And, and if it does, whether it has to move as quickly as the market's pricing. So I think I've always been more open to the idea that the eventual terminal rate will be a bit higher because there just turns out to be more embedded inflation domestically. I'm not sure whether that will be sufficiently clear to get us to four and a quarter, four and a half percent as soon as, as, soon as next spring. So I guess we, we continue to push back a little bit against market pricing, though. We have done that for several months and events have, you know, I think market pricing has been, been more vindicated than, than our, our original forecast. All right, then, uh, moving on to Europe. So, Giles, well, you know, the ECB has been converted to, I guess, front-loading interest rates when you have someone like Philip Lane sounding pretty hawkish. So the market's looking at an 80% probability of uh, 75 basis points next month and perhaps a total of about 60% probability of 150 basis points over the last two meetings of the year. Is 75 basis points going to be the normal, the new normal for the ECB? Well, okay, so my, my simple answer is no, I don't think it probably will be. I think it's probably what they will do next month. That has been our call for several weeks now. And I think that the fact that someone like Philip Lane, who before the meeting, remember, seemed to be leaning more towards 50 basis points for the last meeting than the 75 basis points that was actually delivered. The fact that he's now essentially portraying that as a logical sort of sensible step um, you know, clearly indicates that they 
would be more inclined, I think, to, to take another large step in, in a similar sized step at, the, at this next meeting. So I think that that is still your very firm base case. Whether that means more than 80% or not, I'm not so sure. I think, you know, 80% is probably about right. So I'm sorry to sound a little bit bland in my assessment there. Uh, you know, obviously there's another month and things can go wrong. I, you know, I think that's obviously 50 basis points is more likely than 100 basis points, although that's, you know, that, <laughs> that could also come under review um, depending on data, and, I suppose, and, uh, and other events in, in the meantime. But, um, you know, I think that you know, if, my, if, if, if I'm really pushed i'd say that 50 basis point rises in in october and november and december are more likely than two times 75 for example but i don't think that the market pricing is particularly far-fetched if i'm honest clearly they are looking at closing the gap on on neutral as fast as is reasonably possible and having just done 75 and not really having caused any significant difficulties for for the market i don't really see why they wouldn't try to close that gap at a similar pace and then you know, the question of whether after that we're talking about 25 or 50 or possibly even more you know i guess that you know maybe things are looking more like 50 basis points but our base case is still 25 uh, for that December meeting. And moving on a little bit into the, I suppose, the plumbing of the, uh, the European markets, the demand for collateral or cash or whatever we want to call it has been an important topic and recently a headache for, uh, for the authorities. What's your, what's your kind of view on that? What's going on? So this is probably something that requires the whole in a separate broadcast special or something on um, but no just very briefly I think the way you know what what seems to be happening at the moment is that you know, as we've spoken about before on uh, on broadcast you know, I think that there is a substantial demand for cash anyway I mean there was pre-existing and you know, that was always visible in market rates which uh, you know, for the highest quality stuff was always solidly below the deposit facility rate. That's kind of been accelerating as a, as a theme throughout the year. And you now you can see that in, in various instruments, you no know, German repo is an obvious one. <clears throat> and there's no real reason to think that that is getting any better. And as we get towards the year end, there's always a little bit of a, uh, an excess demand for good quality collateral into, into year end anyway. And you know, I think that the lessons that people are drawing from the last couple of years is that you have to get ahead of that. So I think that that is probably like, you know, that's, that, that's one thing that's likely to be there in the background. Another thing that's possibly in the mix is this question of collateral to, to back margin requirements for energy in the energy futures markets, which is something which is being reviewed by the Commission at the moment. So we, in the um, announcements that followed von der Leyen's uh, State of the Union speech yesterday, there was a little bit of a timeline for the work stream that is looking at that, and in particular, the uh, ESMA is going to report back next Thursday, the 22nd, mark that in your diary, for on 
on possible changes to the way that collateral is posted and so on and so on um, in those markets. And then the following week, um, the EBA is going to be reporting on how collateral is transformed into cash um, in the banking sector in order to make those things available. Anyway, so no, lots of things in, in the mix there. Um, we're talking about serious amounts. I mean, that's about one and a half trillion, according to some media reports. So any uh, significant changes there would potentially be quite important for um, for the demand for cash and collateral and you know, potentially on the on, easily on the scale of any sort of year-end demand as well so there's a lot to uh, to consider there there's also a fairly significant question about the the role of the ECB in the way that it um, it's trying to manage its um, it, you know, the excess liquidity which drains back through the banking system. Um, you know, this whole issue of paying too much interest to, to to the banks that we discussed last week, which could potentially, I think, anyway, result in or end up with the the bank sorry the ECB looking at ways of maybe draining or sterilizing, however you want to call it, um, some of those that, that excess liquidity or making it available to the, uh, the non-banking sector as well. Uh, and that may, depending on how it's designed, uh, provide extra collateral for all these other things. So there's a lot of things to monitor, I would say. Thanks. And uh, to finish up the, this, today's discussion, uh, what, the other focus recently has been energy policies in the euro area. What are you making of this week's announcements and uh, what do you think the implications there are? Well, bro broadly in the same line as what Ross was saying about the UK, but just in a much, much, much more modest way. Um, clearly, the, the Commission you know, doesn't you know, design anything that actually involves taxation. So that's not what they were doing. They're more involved in kind of trying to figure out how to redesign the energy markets. And that is going to take a little bit of time. But I think that is broadly on the right kind of track and should result in eventually sort of more controlled and less volatile uh, energy prices uh, across the board. But you know, clearly to, to retail, that's, um, that, that's going to matter. But also having delivered that, it opens the way to measures at the nation state level. So that's where uh, things like, I mean, fis fis fiscal um, measures like energy price caps and, and so on um, can be put in place. And we saw that yesterday, was it yesterday? Yes, I think it was, from, from France, uh, yesterday, Wednesday, <laughs> just for the avoidance of doubt, from France, which raised its, um, uh, what do they call it, the energy price shield uh, by 15% for the year, which, you know, I mean, is, is, is not unwelcome. Um, for, for I, I suppose many French consumers, but fifteen percent is pretty moderate in the in the context of what's been going on in in energy markets. So that I think would be you know should be pretty supportive for for, for activity and, uh, and and consumer confidence there. Uh, obviously, a week ago we had a, a third round of sort of. You know, 
well, fiscal measures to sort of to try to protect households against um, you know, this energy shock in Germany, and there there could be more there as well. And I think that there will be more from others in the pipeline. So overall, I'm taking this as an additional sign that uh, my my assessment that we're not headed for an out and out energy crisis this winter. Um, you know, which I've been repeating for, for a couple of months now, is, uh, is tracking reasonably well. Okay, that's all we have time for today. Just a reminder that if you enjoyed today's episode, please hit the like button and subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available.